Mark chapter 6 is where we are picking up this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one from that back table there because we are going to be going through a lot of stuff this morning. It would be very helpful for you to follow along. So Mark chapter 6 is where we are. You should have a note sheet. If you don't have a note sheet, any of these chairs you can grab one from. We got a lot to cover here in a short time. So let's go ahead and stand if you are open to Mark 6. We are going to read from verses 7 all the way down through verse 30. So let's read that, and then we'll jump into our time together today. Sorry, in verse 7, it says, He, that being Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put... To, Put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that, G- that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed the oil, uh, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard about it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for all the nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests, and he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done. You can have a seat. Let's pray. We'll spend the next 40 minutes or so here just processing this together. So Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be here this morning. We just ask now in these uh, few moments that we have together that you would help us to more clearly see and more clearly understand what it looks like and what it means to commit our lives to following you. Uh, Your word makes it very clear that this is no small decision. It is one that comes with counting the cost. And so I pray that in these few brief moments we have together this morning, you would help 
make that abundantly clear to us together today. Help us to see that there is a cost to following you, but Lord, the cost to follow you is one that is worthy, it is one that comes with joy, and it is one that ultimately, Lord, uh, gives us great pleasure and delight. So help us to see that this morning. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we pick up here in Mark chapter 6. If you remember, we've been on the heels of Jesus going throughout doing ministry in all these areas where he's really being uh, received and he's uh, really speaking to the power of faith in the lives of different people. But if you remember at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Jesus went someplace where he was rejected. Do you remember where was that? Where was he rejected? Yeah. Nazareth, which was ironic because Nazareth was his hometown, right? He was not received as a a hometown hero, but rather he was rejected and people were offended at him because of the authority with which he spoke. Now, on the heels of his rejection by his hometown of Nazareth, he begins by uh, going to, he, he, he moves from there to start doing ministry in all these other towns, but he now is sending out his disciples to carry out his ministry work. And this passage is kind of interesting because you notice it begins with him sending out his 12 disciples and it ends in verse 30 by his disciples coming back to him to report everything that they had done. And situated in between those going and coming back is a very interesting story, a flashback, to what happened to John the Baptist, because we just know from back in chapter 1 that John was arrested, but we don't hear anything else of him until this point in time. So in between is this unique story that's sandwiched to really show us the nature of what true discipleship looks like. I think that that's why Mark did it this way, right? Whenever we have these sandwich effects, it means whatever is in between is really trying to prove that ultimate point of that passage. And so I think the big idea that Mark is trying to show us this morning as we look at this passage is this, is that really following Jesus comes at a cost. Um, You know, too often we think about maybe in our culture today, following Jesus to be a pretty easy decision. One that is pretty free, that's pretty relieving, especially in our Americanized culture. But I think that this is really a timely message for us where we have to remember that the Bible really speaks very seriously of the the decision to follow Jesus is one that comes at a cost. It's a worthy cost, but it is costly. This is kind of unique because today is a baptism Sunday and we ask ourselves why on earth would people in our church desire to follow Jesus and identify with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, I mean, I think Jesus himself makes it very clear in Luke 14, uh, Luke 14, 28, that those who desire to follow him must count the cost, just like a builder would do so before he determines if he has enough money to build this giant structure or a king before he goes out into battle. He would make sure he has the right number of people in order to actually effectively wage war on another person or another country. Major life decisions call for you to count the various costs. You're going to hear that, right? When it comes to making big decisions for college, you're going to have to consider all the different factors that go into it. Five. 
finances, you know, major things that you want to do, right? There's all kinds of costs you have to consider. Marriage, right? Family, all kinds of things come with counting the costs. Many very worthy costs, but costs nonetheless. And so as we look at this passage again, as we kind of walk back through, what I want to do is really look at two necessary costs that come with following Jesus. Two necessary costs that come with following Jesus. And it's no surprise that the two necessary costs that Mark presents here are the same costs that Jesus mentions about the true nature of discipleship a few chapters later in Mark 8.34 where he says that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Translation, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, or we can say self-denial, and he must take up his cross, self-sacrifice. Translation, stop living for yourself and be ready to die on my behalf. So let's flesh out those two ideas a little bit more here in our passage this morning. First of all, I think what we see in verses 7 through 13 here is that first point that discipleship really requires a life of self-denial. Discipleship requires a life of self-denial. We don't know exactly when this was in Jesus's ministry. Mark's not always concerned about chronology, but it does say that there's a point in his ministry here where he stops. He calls his 12 closest followers. And I say that because, remember, there was more than just 12 people that were following Jesus. He had fairly large crowds that were with him. He had actually in one place, he sends out 70. So here he sends out his 12 closest, the 12 disciples that he named back in chapter three, and he sends them out. He sends them out to carry out his ministry work on his behalf for a short period of time. We've said this before. It's one thing to demonstrate the, the ministry work to them, as he had been doing, but it's a whole nother thing to actually do it yourself, right? One of the best ways to learn how to do something is to what? Do it yourself. You can only be a student of something so long before you have to say, okay, Spread your wings and fly. you got to try this on your own. Uh, a couple of years ago was uh, when I started to get really interested in how to better uh, smoke and barbecue meat. Anybody like that stuff? I know you do, Paul. Yeah. I had lots of guys that I read or watched videos of. In fact, one of the guys here, the guy on the left there, I went to seminary with that guy. And now he's like a YouTube star. It's pretty awesome. Uh, this other guy here on the right, he's just got a cool beard, but he's got a cool book. So I spent a lot of time reading and trying to understand these guys and watching them do what they do. But the reality is I, I couldn't actually effectively know how to do it until I actually tried it myself. Actually got out the smoker and tried to figure out all the, the skills that are required to bring about a delicious product like these guys do. And I'm still very far from it. But that's the point. You have to grow into it. When I was in seminary and out in California, we had a group of people who would go out and we would do cold turkey evangelism with uh, people on the college campuses. And for a while, it was just me kind of watching and observing how some of these guys did it. But eventually it was like, okay. It's your turn. You're going to take this one. We're going to go up to this person and you're going to, you're going to lead the conversation. It is a terrifying thing. And yet, 
It's so good and right and appropriate. That's why some of you are going to San Francisco this summer is because you are wanting to implement and learn things just like this. It's good. It's right. It's appropriate. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach and show his disciples here. He gives them a taste of the mission that they would carry out after his death because that's exactly what they were going to do. And so they go out proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to repent and showing their authority through miraculous signs. I love what Jesus does here. He pairs them up two by two. He doesn't send them out alone. He sends them up two by two, which if you're anything like me, you kind of want to know which person got paired up with the other, right? Like, I would just love it if you had, you know, Matthew, who was this, like, traitor to the Jewish people, and you have Simon the Zealot, who hated traitors to the Jewish people, and Jesus put them together on a team. You imagine? I would have loved it. We don't know that information, but I would love to see that. But notice his instructions to them. His instructions to them are not so much of a, here's what you're going to do. But you know what he gives them? He gives them essentially a packing list. Kind of like what we do when we go off to ice camp, right? Gives them a packing list. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to bring along with you. Essentially, they are traveling hobos with no food, no money, and no home. Now, to be very clear, this is not a template for how world missions should be done today, right? This is not saying that, oh man, you have to not bring anything with you. But what is he trying to show us about true discipleship? Well, I think he's trying to show us, first of all, that you don't prioritize the things of this world. Most of what they were told to take was summed up in that word, nothing. Take no food. Bag? Nope. Money? Nope. Extra underwear? Nope. They could take a staff, a cloak, and a pair of sandals. Basically what they had on them in the moment. Why? Because Jesus wants them, uh, wants to teach them that dependence and trust are essential to be his disciple. Even more than that, he wanted them to not be weighed down by the cares and the comforts of this world. Which translates pretty well to today's culture too, doesn't it? Because we live in a world that is filled with comforts or at least the pursuit of comforts. Living to get the best grades, right? We've seen this pattern before, right? You live to basically get the best grades. Well, why do you live to get the best grades? Well, you want to get into the the best schools. Well, why do you want to get into the best schools? Well, so that you get the best job. Well, why do you want the best job? Well, so that you can make the most money. Well, why do you want to make the most money? So you can get the most lavish lifestyle. Well, why do you want to get the most lavish lifestyle? Do, Do you see the pattern? Do you see how it's so easy to be told by the world of this is what's important to pursue, and yet all of it, none of those things of themselves have to be bad, but Jesus says it sets a wrong mindset of what you're living for. All of this can be self-centered and shows a misplaced priority that is rooted in the world rather than Jesus. Jesus wants his disciples to have the right priorities, not climbing the ladder, but resting in the Savior. Secondly, I think this is meant to show us that you don't live for the approval of others. You don't live for the approval of others. Jesus wanted his followers to have appropriate expectations of what they were going out to do. 
And in verse 11, he prepares them for the fact that they very well might be rejected like he was rejected in Nazareth. In fact, he says to them, if a place doesn't receive you, you're to take off your sandals and you're to smack them together and you're to remove all the dust off of it because it's a judgment against that city for how they have responded to Jesus. It was Jesus' way of saying they were bound to get a variety of responses. Following Jesus, he's making it very clear, it's not just this smooth sailing trajectory of always going upward. Discipleship is going to be filled with highs and lows, successes and failures. You may be received by some people and you might be persecuted by others. There's no guarantee what type of response you're going to get. But it is not your job, student, to be concerned with outcomes and how people respond to you. You don't exist to control outcomes or how people respond to the message of Jesus. You are to care more about what Jesus thinks of you than what people think of you. And one of the greatest, I believe that one of the greatest hindrances to discipleship for most young people, and it is for adults as well, especially young people, is the fear of man. By fear of man, we basically just mean that you live more for the approval of others than you do the approval of God. But our greatest concern should not be the approval of people, but God himself. People may judge you now, but God is the one who will judge you in the end. It's his approval, student, that matters the most to you. I want to spend the majority of our time here on the second point because not only is discipleship a requirement to self-denial, it's also a requirement uh, or a call to self-sacrifice. A call to self-sacrifice. We see this in the story of John the Baptist. Not only does uh, following Jesus require us to deny ourselves, but it also requires us to lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus. We're going to talk about this more when we get to chapter 8, but carrying your cross, when Jesus talks about denying yourself and carrying your cross, carrying your cross is not some metaphor for just carrying the weight of certain burdens. We've heard that maybe before where people are just like, oh, it's just my cross to bear, or it's my cross to carry. That's not what Jesus meant. People in this culture would have understood it for what it was. To carry your cross means that you are willing to go to the point of death for Jesus. He is so valuable and so life-giving that you're willing to surrender all that you are in order to follow him. Self-sacrifice is at the heart of being a follower of Jesus, and it's what we see put on display in verses 14 to 29. In order to better understand what is happening here, I want to ask you two questions that are essential, that were essential for John the Baptist himself to answer uh, in this story. And the first question is this: Are you willing to stand up for righteousness? Are you willing to stand up for the sake of, of righteousness? The story picks up in verse 14 with King Herod, which is interesting. I think that's actually Mark being a little bit sarcastic because Herod was actually not a king. Um, he was what was called a, a tetrarch. He was basically a Jewish ruler of a particular region, but the, he was kind of a puppet leader to the Romans, but the Romans would not install on him the title of king. They did not want that type of language. And so the fact that Mark kind of calls him a king, I think, is a little bit sarcastic uh, in this context here. 
but Herod here, he hears these rumors of the fame uh, surrounding Jesus. And to him, this sounded like somebody familiar to him. It sounded like somebody who he didn't care for in the entirety, somebody by the name of John the Baptist. We don't really know of John as a miracle worker, but certainly a big personality who attracted the crowds. And others in Herod's court thought that maybe this was somebody else. Maybe this was, you know, a a resurrected form of Elijah. Maybe he was some other prophetic messenger from God. I mean, all of these things had some merit to them as to why they thought these things. But it's interesting. Verse 16 makes it clear that Herod is not about to be swayed from his own thoughts on the situation because he is convinced that John the Baptist had come back to life and in many ways was almost there to haunt him. It's crazy. And the reason he thinks this, I mean, we don't even know that John had died up until this point. All of a sudden we were being told, wait, John's dead? And that's where verse 17 gives us a flashback into the drama that had unfolded between Herod and John the Baptist because there's a story behind this. There's a reason he feels this weight of guilt and remorse in some ways. Well, verse 17 is loaded with material that, (laughs) for honest, it would be all over entertainment tonight. Uh, Herod had arrested John because John was speaking out against his marriage to a gal by the name of Herodias. And you might be asking yourself, well, what's so bad about his marriage to Herodias? Well, verse 17 tells us that Herodias wasn't his wife. In fact, Herodias was the wife of somebody else who just so happened to be his brother. Uh, (laughs) This is is getting interesting here. Without getting into too much detail, I I could put up like a whole graph for you of like the Herodian dynasty and the family situation, and it would just be more confusing to you because it's a headache to try to keep up with it. Uh, If there was a, a TV show that would mirror the, the Herod family. It would be called keeping up with the Herodians, right? Like that's, that's the type of situation with this family. It's grotesque. And it all begins with Herod the Great. Herod the Great, if you remember, was the Herod who was in charge at the time of Jesus' birth. And you know that from that story, Herod did not want Jesus to live, right? He sends people to try to kill all the infants two years and younger because he didn't want somebody else to be king in his place. So that's this Herod. And then Herod had 10 sons, most of them by different wives. And that's why we have so many different Herods throughout the New Testament. It's because they're all kind of connected to this guy. And it is a mess. It is confusing, I will admit. But one of his sons was a guy by the name of Herod Philip. So almost all of them have the name Herod, but they have some type of qualifier. Herod Herod Philip. And he married Herodias. That's the gal that we see here in this story. And if you look at her name, you notice, well, her name kind of looks familiar. It kind of looks like Herod in it. And you're absolutely right. If you see that, that's because, guess what? She was actually a part of the family. She was actually the daughter of one of Philip's older brothers, which would make her his niece, right? So we have Herod, Philip, marrying his niece, and then we have Herod 
in this story, which I believe is Herod Antipas from what we know from history, marrying his brother's wife, who is also his niece and also his sister-in-law. And you get the picture. Isn't this weird? This is gross. It's weird. And it should make you kind of have goosebumps like that this is not right. And you're absolutely correct. It's not right. There is absolute wickedness on full display in this story. And it gets worse because Herodias here, obviously, divorced her husband to end up being with him. It is scandalous beyond what we would even find in our own messed up culture today. John's response to this wickedness, he speaks out against it. He stands up for the righteousness of God. In verse 18, it says that he was one actually saying, you're wrong for this. This is not right. God would not want this. You claim to represent God's people, but this is not God's way. Self-sacrifice for John meant that he was willing to stand up for righteousness, even if it was not the popular decision or it was hard. And you think about that for us even today in the lesson for us. Our need to stand up for what's right in today's culture, that doesn't mean you have to be the loudest, doesn't mean you have to be arrogant, doesn't mean you even have to be rude about it, but you do have to draw lines, right? You do have to be clear on what you believe and stand up for what the Bible would call righteous. You have all kinds of things, student, right now in your culture as it relates to marriage and gender and sexuality and abortion, and the list goes on and on, that our culture is trying to redefine what is right. And we need God-honoring Christians to be able to be willing to stand up for what is truly right in God's eyes. Because standing strong is a form of self-sacrifice, especially when you know it may not be the popular or well-received position. And it wasn't for John. In verse 17, it says that he was arrested for this. For calling out this, he was not well received, especially by Herodias. Notice that Herodias, what did she want? She wanted John dead. She's like, put an end to it. But for some reason, Herod was intrigued by John the Baptist. He couldn't bring himself to kill him. And so instead, he had him as like this little pet entertainment figure that he would go and he would listen to. And there was something stirring in him, and yet he would not trust in the message that John was proclaiming, but he couldn't put him to death either. It's a very sad story for Herod here. And so again, I ask you, are you willing to stand up for righteousness? And I want to maybe qualify that by asking a second question. Are you willing to stand up for righteousness even when it proves costly? Even when it proves costly to your life? Herodias finally gets her chance at bloodthirst with John the Baptist. Verse 21, Herod throws himself a birthday party, and he invites all the who's who of the land to be a part of that birthday party. And unfortunately, this was not your, uh, your kid-friendly birthday party, right? There was no musical chairs. There was no pin the tail on the donkey. There was no pinata. None of that. There might have been, but probably not. Instead, probably a drunken feast with crude entertainment. And the feature presentation of it was Herodias' daughter. So, again, think about this. If this is Herodias' daughter, this is technically Herod's great-niece-slash-stepdaughter. History knows her by the name of Salome. 
dancing before this group of men. And I will be very clear, this is not a preview of her upcoming ballet recital. This was crude, it was sexualized, and it was perversive. All the more heinous when you remember that this was his great niece and stepdaughter. But her dance serves its purpose. And Herod and his men are so pleased that Herod promises to give her whatever she asks for, up to half of his kingdom, which is kind of ironic because he actually had no power and authority to do anything like that. Basically his way of saying, what's your request? I'll give it to you. Whatever you, whatever you ask, I will give it to you. <laughs> Instead of getting a birthday present, he's going to give her a gift on his birthday. And such a big opportunity requires such extra consultation that Salome goes out of the room, presents the opportunity to her mom, and Herodias, filled with such bloodlust over what John had said about her, asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Hashtag worst birthday party ever, right? And as a good, obedient daughter, that's exactly what she does. In verse 25, she presents, her, or presents him with her demands. Herod was distraught by this, caught in between a rock and a hard place on the one hand. He didn't want to put John to death. He had been putting that off because he actually liked John to some degree. And yet, because he had now made a vow in front of all of his friends and all of his party guests, he is going to look really foolish if he doesn't go through with this. And yet he's going to still look foolish even if he does. And the deciding factor in verse, 30, uh, verse 26 is that he wanted to save face with all of his guests. So instead of owning up to his mistake, he puts an innocent, righteous man to death. Sends the executioner, chops off John's head, and delivers it to this young gal on a platter in the midst of all these people. Yes, it is that gross. Yes, it is in the Bible. And I assure you that it is far more gruesome than it even sounds on paper. The response to verse 29, fortunately, John's dignity was preserved in some fashion. His own disciples that he had during his ministry come and they, uh, they bury him. They put him in a proper tomb. And it's a, a quick kind of foreshadow in many ways of the type of ending that Jesus himself would one day face, right? Not only was John the forerunner in his message of Jesus, but really even in Jesus' death, right? Jesus would be unjustly arrested for speaking righteousness. Jesus would be unfairly tried by an unrighteous man who would give him over to death because of the fear of people and what they would do to him rather than being an honest man and then ultimately having to be buried by his own closest followers to give him some dignity and respect to how he was treated in his burial. So I ask you this morning, why include this story? This is kind of a, one of those stories you're like, what am I actually supposed to walk away from this morning with this? And obviously it's to help you remember the cost of following Jesus, but also to really wonder what would drive such radical devotion to another person. And that's why I'm here to remind you this morning, student, the answer to that is love, worthiness, and joy. So much of my purpose and why we are teaching through the gospel of Mark is to teach you why Jesus is so worth it. Jesus is so worth it that you would be willing to even go to such a fate like John the Baptist in order to follow him. That's the surpassing worth of Jesus to all else the world can offer you. 
And so as you walk away from it this morning, a couple things that would just be really helpful for you to think about. First of all, as a disciple, you are a representative of King Jesus. Matthew makes it very clear at the end of his Gospels that you go as his messengers into the world. And you are proclaiming a message about a kingdom, which means a message about a king. Kingdoms by nature have kings. You show yourself a subject who lives in submission to a good king. That's exactly what Jesus' disciples were doing in this passage. Secondly, there is no such thing as indifference towards Jesus. The response that the disciples would have gotten their time with Jesus here was really a dividing line. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. Unlike some of the games that we play here in student ministry, there was no safe zone. There was no neutral zone where you weren't on defense or on offense, you were, you were safe, you were neutral. The Bible never speaks of a neutral territory where it's like, well, I don't really have to commit to Jesus, but I'm not adamantly against him. No, the Bible makes very clear you are either for him or against him. And that should resonate for you. Ask yourself where you actually stand in allegiance to Jesus. Don't play the game. Don't play that game that thinks that you are neutral towards him. Thirdly, guilt is meant to drive you to repentance. I bring this up because of how Herod responded. Do you notice that, again, when Jesus comes on the scene and his disciples are going out, he's feeling this, like, anxiety because he thinks John the Baptist is alive and that he's coming back to haunt him or to do something to him because he feels guilty about what he did to John. It's a reminder to us that guilt, actually, in the Bible is not a bad thing. In fact, God uses guilt to drive us to repentance. God uses guilt to drive us to faith and dependence upon God, not ourselves. Guilt is not a bad thing so long as it drives you back to the source of true and ultimate rescue. Fourth, we should be grieved, not entertained by the wicked ways of this world. This could be a whole lesson this morning, honestly. Too many of us our Herods, allowing ourselves to be pleased by the very things that God calls wicked. Whether it be TV shows that champion sexual immorality and unrighteous living, or social media sessions that turn people into objects for our own personal delights, or getting drawn into crude joking with people at school because it's how you fit into the crowd. Student, you should not be entertained by what God calls wicked. Because what we saw in this story today is a perversion of all that is right in God's eyes. We should not be entertained, but we should be actually grieved to our hearts that that is what sin does to people. All of those things I just described are selfish, and they are the opposite of self-denial and self-sacrifice for the sake of Jesus. For some of you, it's revealing to you this maybe the true spiritual condition of your heart this morning, and for others of you this morning, it's maybe revealing uh, guilt and conviction where maybe it's necessary for you to feel it this morning. No matter which one it is for you this morning, the answer is to point, point you in the direction of what we just covered above, that ultimately you find your repentance in God. Right? This is what 1 John 1.9 tells us. John the Apostle writing about this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what that may be for you this morning and ways that you have dealt with being entertained by wickedness, guess what? God has the answer. Christ himself has the answer to cleanse you of that unrighteousness. Fifth, more Jesus means less of me. And this is, soon, this is awesome. There is a verse for you to memorize in life and to commit to live by. It is John the Baptist's mission statement because this is nothing new for John the Baptist. The fact that he died was no big deal to him because guess what? Very early on in his ministry, he said that his ministry and his existence was all about Jesus increasing and him decreasing. If there is a verse that you should live by, student, man, if your life were to look like that, because the heart of discipleship that Jesus describes in Mark 8, 34, to deny yourself, that's exactly what that verse is all about. More of Jesus and less of you. And so I ask you, is that what people see when they look at you? Is your life increasingly putting Jesus on display rather than your own image and your own ambitions? Because that's what it looks like to be a disciple. More of Jesus, less of you. Now, I only had five on there. I have a bonus for you this morning because this is something that came to me, of course, after I do the note sheets, and it's worthy. If you are willing to die for Jesus, then what's keeping you from living for him right now? Because if I bet I were to ask a lot of you in this room, you would probably say, yeah, I'm willing to die for Jesus. And yet, if you were probably honest with yourself, you're maybe not living for him right now. And so I ask you, if you're willing to die for Jesus, What's keeping you from living for him right now? If Jesus is truly worth it to you, then student, go hard after Jesus. That's exactly what Paul said. For me, to live is Christ. And to die, to die like a John the Baptist, that's game. Game over, I win. That's what this speaks to. Live for Jesus right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for uh, the timely message of this as we think about what it means to follow you. Lord, so many of us are living in a world that says to make much of ourselves, to really point to advancing our own ambitions, our own comforts, our own joys. And yet, Lord, the heart of the gospel message to follow after Jesus says deny yourself reject yourself to reject your own ambitions your own pursuits your own righteousness and instead embrace jesus and make life about him and so today i just pray that our students would be reminded of that that they would bring conviction where necessary into their lives so that lord they would deny themselves that they would be willing to go to the point of death to follow Jesus because they see him as good and righteous and perfect and, Lord, worthy of more than anything else that this world can offer them. We're excited, Lord, for those who have done that. We're excited to be able to celebrate with some of those who are getting baptized here next service. We praise you, Lord, for the work that you are doing in the hearts of our students, and we pray that you would continue to do so for the honor and the glory of your name, in which we pray now. Amen.